0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And SolarRay, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring.
1: Hello and welcome to this very latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you?
2: Giles, I'm uh, as well as could be expected and I trust all our listeners are well. And uh, we've got an interesting uh, couple of two guests this week uh, in 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 a
1: week where South Australia decided to do its own thing again. Yes, yes. Um, South Australia decided to. Well, I'm not too sure it was South Australia's decision, actually. I think it was, um, South Australia separated again. Um, people may remember that South Australia, the renewable grid or our most, um, the grid with the mostest, um, as terms of wind and solar was, um, islanded. I think the word is for just over two and a half weeks. And they've strung up a temporary link to the major transmission line linking Victoria and South Australia. got About six towers got blown down at the end of January. Um, it took me about two and a half weeks to get this temporary link up, and so there's just a single link rather than having a twin link, which is what they normally have, because they're still waiting to add the second one, and um, obviously some problem happened with that um, yesterday afternoon, but um, back on in about eight hours. But, um, look, once again, the, um, the batteries played a key role in... Um, You know, uh, dealing with any great frequency excursions, which usually happens when the line suddenly goes down. And um, it's been pretty much a fantastic success story, hasn't it, um, David? The Tesla battery. um, I've written a couple of articles over in the last week. It's the. uh, another report came out from Oricon detailing the amount of money it has saved just in the FCAS markets in South Australia over the last two years. It's obviously making a reasonable, a lot of money for its owners, NeoEn, and it's playing a very critical role in providing grid stability.
2: I think you've summed it up. I think that South Australia, as most of our listeners will know, is, is a market where around about 50% of the energy, give or take, uh, over the course of twelve months uh, does come from wind and solar and behind the meter solar and that that percentage is growing so uh, when it can disconnect uh, from the main grid or from any other support for you know a week or two or even for a few hours uh, and continue to operate it as though it was still connected uh, that has to be seen as a good result, particularly as there's actually an aluminium smelter in what's what's a fairly small load typically only a couple of gigawatts in total or you know less than three. Uh, and, and it's running just fine, and and your points on the battery are exactly right, and uh, we see that. In fact, NeoN is, as we our listeners will know, expanding the battery, and we're seeing lots of other batteries. And uh, you know, I think that says two things: one, the technical capabilities of them are fantastic in a number of things, and secondly, uh, uh, which I think is just as important point, the economics are improving at a fairly rapid rate.
3: Yeah,
1: and it's going to be really interesting because we've talked in the past about whether batteries could be a uh, substitute for um, grid upgrades, um, not by necessarily building bigger poles and wires, but by uh, you know adding sort of other equipment, uh, capacitor banks and sort of bigger substations and such like, just to basically increase the capacity of the lines that link the major states. So Victoria and New South Wales, Queensland and New South Wales and South Australia and Victoria and et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of these lines actually don't operate at full capacity because the market operator likes to have something back in reserve just in case um, something happens. So what they're thinking about now, um, Angus Taylor made a big deal with the New South Wales government of upgrading the link between New South Wales and Queensland, and TransGrid looked at sort of um, conventional equipment plus the batteries. The batteries just missed out. But now Victoria wants to increase the capacity of it's link with New South Wales, and it's actually going to go the direct route. It's going to go for a tender. So that's going to be really, or expressions of interest first and then tender, that's going to be really interesting because I just think that the batteries are actually going to win this time because, you know, Transgrid is probably more used to, you know, building the normal things that it builds. But um, now you've got the battery people in there competing in this tender, and I think that's going to be fascinating, and that's just going to add yet another dimension to the working of the battery. And um, I suspect that sometime soon when the parliamentary people have their um, quiz nights, then they might have a question as to, um, you know, what's the difference between a big banana and a big battery, <laughs> along with um, things. <laughs>
2: It sounds like one's going to be in Victoria and one's in Queensland, but anyway, who who knows? Maybe it's in New South Wales.
1: Um, Uh, Yes, one's in South Australia, one's in New South Wales, but anyway, but I think we should get on to our um, our two guests because they're both along these lines. In fact, Bjorn Stunberg, who uh, is our second um, interviewer. Now, you've been very busy. Um, you went down to this one hundred percent renewable energy conference at Anu a couple of weeks ago. Um, you heard all the presentations and you picked out two people to follow up with and you've done two great interviews with them um all about going to one hundred percent renewables, which is sort of the subject which um, um the government and the mainstream media they dare, dare not mention.
2: Well, Giles, that's right, and, and uh, I chose those two people both because they're individually very good, as was nearly everyone there, but uh, secondly because they represent, in some sense, the opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, Dave Osmond, a part of Windlab, is looking at essentially the utility scale side of a high renewables penetration and the contribution of his study, which has actually been around for a while now, but uh, uh, it, it was repeated, and... Um, Uh, But the point of his study is that uh, you don't actually need quite as much transmission as, say, the prior work from ANU uh, would have you believe. You do need to have a decent connection to Queensland because the wind uh, up there is counter cyclical to the rest of the wind and because the solar is in in, in winter Uh, and winter is the problem in Australia. And you do need to have a transmission connection linked to um, Tasmania because they've got a lot of hydro resource down there that we can, and pumped hydro potentially, that we can take advantage of. But you don't actually need, on his modelling, too much more. The other interview, uh, which I think is, uh, Jean Stuber, Sternberg has already done a lot of stuff. He, he built the first embedded microgrid, uh, which is where a whole bunch of houses had a uh, an apartment block, everyone had a battery. And he's moved on to that to working on uh, the battery integration program at ANU, and I expect to see more coming out of this. But uh, his concept, which I think is vitally important, considering that about a a quarter of Australian houses have now got solar, is this idea of these interlinked microgrids, uh, which are going to take over the job of running the system uh, as we lose inertia from the big coal generators, which is the sort of big technical challenge that, that... uh, you know, essentially AEMO isn't uh, able to deal with just at the moment, but it's going to get there.
1: Well, that's really good. Let's get on to the first of these two interviews. And this is with David Osman, um, Chief Engineer at Windlab. It's uh,
2: it's a pleasure to have you, David uh, Osman, Senior Wind Engineer for Windlab uh, on the podcast. Uh, I listened to a uh, great presentation by you at ANU's Renewable 100% Energy uh, Conference on Tuesday the uh, Uh, 18th of February and I was just interested to explore that a little bit more first of all for the benefit of our listeners could you maybe just talk for a a couple of minutes uh, about what the study was and 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 its results
3: sure hi Dave thanks for inviting me on Uh, So a quick overview of my study was I presented a study where the national energy market was approximately 96% renewable. Now, one of the ways it differs from a lot of the 100% renewable studies, and we've seen several of those over the years now, is that my study was based on actual generation data. Uh, Most of the other ones, because until recently we didn't have much in the way of large-scale solar or wind in some of the states. We weren't really able to do those studies, but now in the last few years, we've just started to get that larger geographic um, coverage of the NEM. And so what I did was I took actual generation data from AMO and scaled it up you know, by a lot in Queensland, in, uh, in some states, uh, by less in others like South Australia, which has already got a high penetration. Uh, to make it more in line with those other 100% renewable studies and just had a look at how the generation varied from day to day, how much storage we'd need to uh, match supply and demand most of the time. But I guess the obvious other difference is that my study was just 95% renewable instead of 100% renewable. And that's because the last 5% is, is a lot more challenging than the first 95%, if you like. And at this stage... I I agree with that.
2: I I agree with that. Sorry. and just um, uh, So you added uh, 30 30 gigawatts of wind to the existing wind thing and about uh, another 14 or so gigawatts of utility PV and about another, uh, what, 25 gigawatts of rooftop PV. PV. And then I think your study also envisaged the first link of Marinus. That's the the, uh, uh, DC connection between Tasmania and the mainland and also a bit of extra transmission in Queensland, but not really a lot of extra, extra transmission. Uh, have I got that about right?
3: Yes, that's all exactly right, Dave. Um, yeah, I guess one of the other things is uh, we are trying to look at things that look like they are going to happen. So uh, all the stage one recommendations from the ISP of grid upgrades um, and then we, we didn't want to make too many major changes to the interconnections and things like that. We wanted to see you know, using a, a grid that's pretty similar to what it is today, other than having a lot more wind and solar and, and no fossil, well, no coal generation, uh, to see how close we can get to 100% without making you know, massive changes to our network as it currently is.
2: That's that's right, and so just in terms of the optimization, I guess of this, and I want to come onto the storage, which to me is the uh, uh, really new thing in a way. But just in terms of the balance between wind and solar, uh, did you have to run through a lot of simulations to find the, the best mix, or or was it done mathematically, or or I would have just done it by uh, eyeballing it and looking at say. You know, how did did you get to that mix?
3: Well, I I started off with an eyeball, but then when you run each simulation, uh, the model tells you essentially how much of the last megawatt hour of each technology is getting used and how much is, is getting wasted because it's being produced on a day where we've already met supply. And so by looking at that, you can see which technology in which state is still helping you to meet those last sort of 10% of demand. And so by using the results of each simulation, it gave you clues as to what technology in which state you needed more of and which one you needed less of. And that's how I ended up with my end result.
2: So I guess uh, in in a word that that results are likely to be something close to the result someone else would get no matter how hard they tried, if I can put it that way.
3: I think most people get fairly similar results. Obviously, there'll be differences depending on your cost assumptions for wind versus solar. So I kind of assumed they were both similar, around $50 a megawatt hour, uh, which led to end up getting about 60% wind, 40% solar. But obviously, if you assume solar keeps on decreasing in price uh, at a rapid rate, then you'll probably end up with a higher penetration rate of solar. But the other thing, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, sorry, there's a whole
2: lot of things that come on to me to come to me for that because the capacity utilization in uh, in uh, utility solar, because of the uh, high uh, DC to AC ratio, sort of incentivizes that uh, over rooftop in my mind. But look, I don't want to spend too long on that mix. It's it's interesting, but it's not the key point today. But I think our listeners would be interested to hear what sort of uh, price you ended up with uh, for electricity in this scenario uh, across the NEM. And I guess that's in the dollars of today at that using that $50 a megawatt hour for the variable renewable energy share.
3: Yeah, so I ended up with a value that was sort of mid $70 per megawatt hour. So that was comprised approximately $50 for the for the wind and the solar and actually i varied the solar a little bit for each state because obviously solar is a bit cheaper in queensland than it is in victoria for example but basically it was a bit over fifty dollars for the for the generation for the wind and solar and a bit over twenty dollars for the the balancing and firming if you like
2: let's talk about that balancing and firming because that's uh i think where the debate's at at the moment how much uh storage or firming that we need, can you just talk generally a little bit about uh, what the model showed in in, in terms of the, I guess, the uh, energy share that is the uh, But first of all, the amount of power that we need, the amount of gigawatts of of, of, uh, storage or firming and and secondly, what share of the energy that that's that's going to end up producing, that the the firming power will, will produce?
3: Sure. Well, most of, my, most of the storage in my model was uh, daily storage. So that's storage that gets cycled most days, and it's generally just used for storing solar from the middle of the day and dispatching it later in the day when there's less solar. And I had uh, 24 gigawatts and 81 gigawatt hours of this daily storage, so on average about three and a half hours of storage for every megawatt. Uh, And it delivered about 8% of net generation at the end, so obviously you're putting in a bit more than 8% from wind and solar, and then the end result uh, with assuming an 85% efficiency of the battery or the pumped hydro, uh, you end up with 8% of the energy coming out of the storage. So that's, uh, but
2: on the other hand, uh, seasonally, there'll be times and your model showed this when uh, wind and particularly solar produce less in say winter, I guess demands uh, and demand may even be increasing then. Um, And so you need longer duration storage at that time. Uh, How does that work?
3: Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So my storage was mostly just used to balance things within a day. Uh, It was only used a little bit for storing excess on one day and then releasing it on the next. Uh, However, I did add Snowy 2.0 to the model, uh, and that does help with that sort of longer-term storage where you're able to shift generation from one day or a couple of days and then release it the next. Uh, But then when you get to seasonal storage, now you're exactly right. When you're trying to match supply and demand using mainly wind and solar, winter becomes the really challenging season. Now, luckily, wind tends to produce more in winter than it does in summer, so that certainly helps. But it's certainly not true that it's always windy in winter. So you always get uh, these few days where you might have a wind drought over most of Southern Australia. And one thing my study showed is often when that happens, you get good wind in Queensland, which helps to offset it, but it doesn't fully offset it. Um, And, well, one thing you really use rely on heavily to fill those gaps is existing hydro. So we've got over 7 gigawatts of existing hydro that's highly dispatchable. And that's really useful to fill those gaps in winter, but it's not quite enough. You need a bit more than 7 gigawatts or you, you need a fair bit more than seven gigawatts, I should say, to fill those gaps. So existing hydro isn't quite enough. Uh, normally is the, the annual generation from hydro quite enough to fill those, uh, that seasonal gaps. Uh, so Snowy 2.0 can play a small role in helping to fill that, but uh, we'll need more again. Um, and I guess that's one of the- Sorry, sorry continue. Sorry,
2: sorry, David, sorry. yeah. And you use gas in in your model, which is fine, and i will come back to that, uh, and I'm conscious of time here. But uh, in the end, uh, how many hours or how many times or how should I think about how much of the seasonal storage is actually needed? I mean, what percentage of total hours in a year is going to be generated by other than daily storage, if I can put it that way?
3: Uh, Yeah, well, that's... um, Well, just to fill in, I did use gas to fill that, and the gas was providing the sort of the 4% of supply that I couldn't meet from wind and solar. So, yeah, 4%, you're looking at about 8 terawatt hours a year. In terms of the number of hours, I mean, that's a difficult question to ask, because I was, you know, know, obviously other studies that go 100% renewable they had more storage. Like the ANU 100% study had 450 gigawatt hours compared to the just over 80 in mine, and so they've shown you can get you can fully meet supply and demand through winter, you know, ramping it up to that much storage. So that's certainly one option. But another option is just massive overgeneration, where you um, where you make sure you have enough wind and solar so that even on the worst day you can pretty much meet demand, or at least helped with existing hydro. Yes, that's
2: that's the value of spilled energy that you will get at other times. Uh, and, and again, this is such a good topic, but we're going to have such short time. You didn't actually assume any more pumped hydro in Tasmania, even though you've... You put you strengthened the transmission link. You just took the existing uh, power and and uh, reserve capacity down there. Is, is that is that right? That's
3: right. Yeah. Tasmania's hydro is extremely useful for balancing demand on the NEM uh, in a mostly renewable grid. Uh, so for those few days where you have a wind drought in winter, it's good to be able to get as much of the hydro capacity out of Tasmania as possible. Um, so I assumed. And, 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 and... Sorry, and they could put some more pumped
2: hydro in in, in if they wanted to. Uh, I'm sorry to keep moving this along, David, I, um, but it's, it is interesting. Now, the other question, and we're going to come to later in this podcast, I hope, if I don't fill up all this this podcast with this, this one, is just talking about how your study in your mind could or how um, uh, behind the meter uh, could integrate with this study if i can I, can I ask you about that, for instance, what about home batteries and community batteries and even demand management and all of those things? Did, uh, can that interact with this model that you have to in some way, how do you think about that?
3: Uh, yes, well, I mean, in terms of behind the meter, so obviously rooftop solar is just going crazy at the moment and there's no sign of that sort of slowing down and instead it just keeps on accelerating each year so behind the meter solar is unstoppable uh, behind the meter batteries you know the economics are for most of us are a little bit questionable at the moment but I think it's it's certainly quite foreseeable that within a few years it, uh, those economics will change and we'll see a flood of behind the meter batteries as well uh, so they can play a very big role in the behind the in the daily storage that i'm using in my model uh, you know if about 3 million houses had a typical size battery in their in their garage then that would meet a substantial fraction of the 81 gigawatt hours that i'm that my model suggests is what we need for this daily storage capacity and and obviously demand reduction is also another key point as well so
2: uh, that's interesting. Uh, and uh, I don't know what else to say about that because we could talk about the relative advantages of, uh, of the costs of a utility scale battery or pumped hydro, but it's kind of, it's not beyond the scope of the study, but it's just a whole other topic. <laughs> uh, I want to wind it up, uh, not because, but uh, what else would you like to say about, this, uh, about your study? well what other, what else would you like to say in general it's <laughs> it's interesting
3: yeah yeah well i mean i just want to point out that you know 90 to 95% renewable grid is readily achievable using today technology it's really just the last 5 to 10% that gets difficult and at the moment we're you know it's still early days for the technologies that may help us reach that last 5 to 10 10%. It could be demand management. It could be long-term pumped hydro, like Snowy 2 or Tasmania's battery of the nation. Uh, it could be hydrogen, uh, or it could just be large oversupply of wind and solar, so that um, so that we don't have a shortfall on any day. Uh, but my point is that 95, 90 to 95% renewable is readily achievable, and you know. It in the next decade or so, I think we'll have a pretty good idea about how to get rid of the fossil fraction of those last five 10%.
2: 10%. That's fantastic. And I, I would say that another conclusion, and in fact, the, t- the title of your report is that to do this, uh, you really need the transmission to North Queensland and the Mariners link. And yet uh, without being at all critical of the ISP, the ISP doesn't see those as, as the sort of main things that are needed. Is, is that
3: right? Yeah, thanks for that, David. Yes, I, I agree completely. Hydro in Tasmania is critically important to getting to mostly renewable, and so is wind in far north Queensland. Not just far north Queensland, just Queensland in general, but far north in particular is negatively correlated with wind in the southern states. It's also negatively correlated with solar. Um, and so, you know, we really need more wind in Queensland to help. Uh, balance the variability of wind in the southern states and and storage in the, and solar in the southern states.
2: Thanks very much, David. Very much appreciate your time.
3: Thanks, David.
1: And that was David Osman, the engineer at Wind Lab. David, um, fascinating stuff. I just point out to readers that um, we've actually published a piece by David Osmond, which looks at this issue of 96% renewables. And I guess not just, um, the point he makes is that it's not just um, not so much transmission that we need. It's actually um, not so much backup. I mean, everyone sort of thinks, oh, wind and solar, grid, renewables need so, so much backup. But um, this is not the only study to point out that um, a lot less than people think and probably a lot less than you actually have for the current existing fossil fuel generation fleet. So, Giles, I think what happens is that the cost of
2: doing the dispatchability, the uh, reliability, uh, increases at the higher the renewable percentage goes. So 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% is all actually pretty bloody easy. Uh, it's only as you get up beyond, say, 70%, 80% that you start to run into the need for more storage. And the slightly more subtle point, uh, why we use a 96%, is that uh, the numbers less than 96%, the storage that you do need or dispatchable power, which could come from gas as well, um, uh, or or the existing pumped hydro or whatever it is, uh, demand response, it's only really relatively short duration. Most of that storage is four hours or less, but there are periods in winter, David's study points out, uh, even with a lot of overbuilding of wind and solar, and, uh where you're still going to need something else to 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 do it, but that's a that is a small market that the longer duration stuff like uh like gas and and like a longer duration pumped hydro uh, is going to be competing for and but when you think about the uh, strategies that the companies and uh, adopt in the market it's important to understand this distinction that you can get an awful lot of value. Uh, and, and it's, it's favourable, frankly, for batteries, because if you mostly only need four hours or less uh, and they can do all these other things, well, you know, and their cost is coming down, it, it makes you think.
1: Absolutely, and on the subject of batteries, let's get on to the next interview. And this is with Bjorn Sternberg. He's the um, lead researcher in the battery integ- integration program at Australian National University.
2: Hi, it's uh, welcome to Sean Stonberg, who's the um, uh, research leader in the battery uh, um, uh, integration program at ANU, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, microgrids. I've been hearing all these uh, buzzwords about uh, solid-state uh, uh, substations, uh, uh, networked microgrids, uh, power electronics is going to be is 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 what everything is these days, both loads and supply. Uh, John, uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, um, uh, connected microgrids that have can island themselves, and uh, how they can
4: be how in- are they interesting? Yeah, thanks for having me, David. Um, yeah, I, I think they're very interesting. Um, so the the way I would describe them, just so that listeners have a bit of a, a tangible picture in front of them, is that a microgrid is, as the name would suggest, just a, sm- a small grid. Um, that has to include a balance of generation and demand, which typically requires them to have storage or a dispatchable generator, such as a diesel gen set. And really, critically, they need to have um, a piece of hardware to control them and software to control them. So, that's, that's where you're getting at. That the kind of this is largely going to be a conversation about um, control. And the, um, the piece I wrote in the conversation recently was really about this concept of a grid of microgrids. And so as you've alluded, those modern what micro, modern microgrids can do is that they can be grid tied, so they can be connected to a national power system, um, but they have the ability to island instantaneously. So often that will occur um, when there's a disturbance on the, on the larger grid. Um, the microgrid can then say, "Oh, something is worrying there, or there's been a blackout. I'll just switch over to taking charge of managing the microgrid myself, as if I'm the microgrid uh, controller." Um, and then can the microgrid can, susta- can sustain itself for a um, it can kind of sustained period of time, running independently. Um, And I kind of see this as really the best of both worlds. You kind of have the, because it's grid tied, you have the efficiency of being a part of the national electricity market in the Australian context, but you have a huge upside in terms of resilience in that you can sustain your power supply um, when cut off and isolated from the rest of the grid has been occurring quite a bit. I know to yourself personally from floods and from many Australians over the summer from bushfires. That's, that's
2: right. And so uh, let's talk about how a microgrid actually does do its uh, control system. I suppose we might start with an isolated microgrid very quickly and then work up to what difference there is when it's, when it's part of a distributed network. So, I mean, um, I, am I right to say that uh, the control system in an isolated microgrid will often come from a grid forming
4: inverter of some description? yeah so in that's that's exactly right so to to maintain your your power system um, any power system you need three things is three pillars as I like to think about them One is that you have um, a sufficient network in place to supply or deliver your electrons from generators to, to loads. Um, the second is that you have is around reliability, so you have sufficient supply to meet the demand to today, tomorrow, next year or in five years time. And so microgrid controllers will have, keep some track of um, that, how much energy they have in the battery, how much is likely to be foreca- uh, is forecast to be produced from solar or, or other generators in the coming days and will kind of plan out reliability. But the really central part that I think has um, probably evolved the most in in recent times is around um, the third pillar, which is energy security. And so, energy security gets at keeping a, a power system operating securely, or in a, um, instant at every moment of time, every millisecond. Um, and that requires the system to be able to withstand major disruptions, which in the NEM often is from uh, large fossil generators going offline, surprisingly, or in a microgrid, it might be um, that one of the a set of houses um, do something dramatic or a diesel generator that is a part of the microgrid runs out of fuel or something of that variety. And what the control system of the microgrid needs to be able to do is to manage the frequency of the system um, and the fault current of the system during those events and so both of those and i understand are...
2: I, I i understand it does that by essentially uh controlling the voltage and the current whereas a grid following inverter basically uh reads the voltage and the current and then provides power and reactive power uh, i i am of course a financial analyst and i don't want to waste too much t- of time talking about technical concepts i don't understand but um what is the difference between a grid forming inverter and that, a grid that's... following one
4: that's correct. So to um, run an isolated microgrid, micro be it grid-tied and happens to be islanded or just a standalone system, someone needs to set the frequency, um, and that is what a grid-forming inverter will do for you. So I, I thought you made quite a nice analogy the other day when you were talking about music and how we can use electronic, in your case guitar or an electronic synthesizer, to um, create whatever waveform, whatever sounds and tone. Um, we want over whatever period of time we want. Um, And so you could imagine in in that analogy that a a grid forming inverter is an inverter that can set that frequency, your voltage and your currents, going forwards, whereas what most, well what actually all um, inverters that are for instance installed on rooftop solar systems are doing is that they are following the waveform that they sense at um, where they're ele- electronically connected to the grid. So they they see what the, the voltage waveform is doing and then they match, they lock in their supply of power um, to that waveform, whereas a grid forming inverter can is creative enough, if you will, or has a sophisticated enough control system um, that it can also set its own frequency.
2: That's right. And I think um, uh, uh, the reason why this is so important is that power electronics, let's call grid forming inverters power electronics, uh, don't need uh, physical inertia to do that job. And as the loads become more uh, DC oriented and supply becomes a lot more uh, sort of less inertia is a feature of all the physical systems and particularly in Australia. Therefore, it's important to find a way to manage the system without having uh, as much physical inertia.
4: Yeah, that's right. So I've I've done a lot of head scratching about these questions in the the last couple of years because you hear a lot about the fact that we need inertia. And I've come to the conclusion that we really don't need inertia per se. Inertia is like, it very much has the the physical meaning of inertia. It's a a heavy mass that's rotating or moving in a general case, but in the power system, it's the um, big heavy mass that's spinning around in a coal-fired power station, say. And the analogy of that is that you've got a heavy truck and having a heavy truck that's going at a a good clip is a good thing if you start to hit a hill and you want to have some momentum to go up that hill. It's not necessarily such a good thing if you have a really heavy truck but you're racing towards a deep hole in the road. So what that I think gets to is that inertia per se is not the thing that we need to operate the power system. What we need is good frequency control and as you've And then what inertia does is it slows down the rate at which things change, such as the the truck hitting the the incline of a hill. It doesn't change its pace instantaneously. And in the the power system, what we've got as a challenge is that we're losing, that by reducing the amount of inertia that we have in the system, things are starting to change faster. So that means that we need to up our game in terms of our control systems that are controlling the frequency so that we can keep pace with those, those changes. The good news is that um, anyone who has a a computer or a phone or anything else will know that electronics can act extremely fast so we have the ability because in a power um like in a um converter or an inverter um it's electronically controlled it can it can change its behavior very very quickly in, in the scale of milliseconds so i think that is a the tool that matches the challenge that we face we just need to develop so um, good enough control so, systems to work on those.
2: So, so John, I, I guess uh, we, we, we move from that sort of concept uh, to where we are today. And I've got two sub-questions. How does this uh, situation change when we're trying to connect uh, a, a power electronics microgrid into the broader grid? Uh, what do we have to think about? Uh, and secondly, can you just talk a little bit about how these grid forming inverters, the, the technical advances that you yourself are seeing and uh, not just the, I guess the hardware, but as, as ever, it's a software uh, sort of thing. And uh, I want to touch on a tiny question about maybe retrofitting the Australian market to have grid forming instead of grid following inverters and, and whether that's a market opportunity. So there's three tiny questions to, to answer in a, in a short space of time.
4: Excellent. Um, so, I think the the concept of we're not the maybe in terms of the context of where we're where we're at the state of play is that um, we have grid forming inverters that can run um, a household, say, and um, we have demonstrations down in Mooroolbark in Melbourne where a street of eighteen properties um, can be like, have now formed into a microgrid that can island and be run by a grid forming inverter. Um, and then there's the Estuary project down in um, Darimple and the south southern tip or the southern half of the um, Air Peninsula in South Australia, um, where you have a 55 turbine wind farm, the Wattle Point wind farm, and a large battery. Um, I think it's eight megawatt hours and 30 megawatts, if I recall off the top of my head. Um, that likewise then can island off the southern half of that peninsula and service four and a half, four and a bit thousand. Um, customers for as long as the, the wind keeps blowing and the battery can manage and control all of that as an isolated microgrid. So I think those those are only Australian demonstrations, but I think those demonstrations show the advance in, in this technology. And it, I think hopefully demonstrates that this is something that's going to be rolled out in quite a hierarchical manner. I think the challenge that... W- that we we face with going from a system, a power system that was designed very much around synchronous generators such as coal and gas and and hydro um, to something that's going to be run and predominated by power electronic converters is we know how to do 100% power electronics at a at a medium and scale. Say, the challenge is really first of all there are two challenges. The first is making the transition when you still have lots of large synchronous generators and then a growing amount of power electronics getting involved. And the second challenge is doing this at a national scale. So we just really need to think through, and engineers need to to work through how all of the different um, power electronic converters that make up. 100% renewables, say, grid of the future, how they're all going to um, be coordinated and work together. And I'm sorry, I forget and the other answer uh, the question.
2: I'll get to the other bit myself, but uh, just following down that line, where do you go to meetings and stuff where this is actually actively discussed? Because if I read the official documents, uh, as much as I love the ISP, I don't seem to see much concept, uh, or much discussion, or even many articles about it in the popular press and the conversation, whatever. That actually sort of I have to go to the USA to read about this. So, what's actually happening on the ground here in Australia to progress this concept?
4: Yeah, that's that's a good question. A good question. I also picked up on that in the, the draft ISP, and in terms of the pillars, is largely getting at reliability um, over kind of. Ongoing security, um, and we do some some work in um, power electronic converters and, and kind of grid forming and, and microgrids at the ANU, and we're just in the process of building a new power systems lab called the DER lab, where we'll be able to test these things and test their interactions with grid fo- grid following, like standard off the shelf solar install uh, solar converters and EVs and whatnot with grid forming. Um, But also in my experience, um, there's been a lot of work and very active ongoing work over in the US where I spent um, a month last year meeting with a lot of great folk doing these work.
2: Yes, indeed. I I read some presentations. Uh, All the presentations I read are from the US, which is where I get this idea of these uh, solid state uh, substations, which seem to me might save a lot of uh, real estate uh, dollars as well as everything else. I want to touch on just, um, well, my next question is how are we going to, if you're an aluminium smelter uh, at the moment, uh, you're getting your electricity notionally from some giant, you know, you need a, a a gigawatt of power. That's not going to be coming from some residential street, is it, with power electronics? Uh, in this low-inertia world, where's the control of the, of the power flow to something like that going to come from?
4: Yeah, so I really think that um, it's pretty pretty uncontentious un, um, to say that we're we're moving towards a, a system where we have hierarchical control, where there's an increased level of control in the in the household level, in the kind of neighbourhood scale, where we might have uh, a microgrid operating at a regional scale, and then and then at a national scale. Um, and so there's no there's no physical reason I, I think that um, just because you're a larger load that you would require a synchronous generator rather than a power electronics generator. I think all electrons are created equal in that sense. Um, And it would just be relatively inefficient to really be pumping your electrons from deep down in the distribution network all the way up to uh, an aluminium smelter. So I imagine that large loads like that will be continue to be connected to the transmission system and the transmission system will be powered by large um, solar and wind generators, which in turn are operated using power electronic converters.
2: And those power electronic co- converters will notionally have some, over, there'll be uh, software system that, or will they, I mean, I guess I'm trying to understand, will they all be, distri- each one, will sort of be looking at the frequency on the system that they see and comparing it with their own microgrid system and then sort of adjusting. And in that way, the overall system frequency will be maintained. Uh, is, is is that how I should think about a hierarchical control system or is it actually a distributed control system?
4: I think the in the grid of microgrids concept, it's a it's a hierarchical and that hierarchical does get to decentralized but not fully distributed that everyone's doing... Um, Is contributing equally, but I think it's worth just um, being a bit specific around that. You don't need to be in a microgrid to have a grid-forming inverter, so you can very much I can very much foresee that large um, large inverters at solar farms and and wind farms start to be developed that have grid-forming capabilities. And they grid-forming capabilities at a physical at a kind of in a technical sense, they don't need to be the thing that exclusively um, forms the grid, they can still contribute and share the formation of the grid amongst multiple grid-forming inverters. And that really is, um, I think, the, what I've seen internationally. That is that is the challenge at the moment. We know how to create a grid-forming inverter that takes care of its own isolated system. It's how do we have thousands of them that share the load amongst each other. But that is, in the end, where um, big utility solar and wind farms will end up. Um, And that is a matter of of largely um, of software. There will be some hardware changes probably, um, but really the the emphasis that I'd like to place is on the the control system on the software that um, those inverters will be um, running under.
2: I think uh, I agree with that, I and mean, I agree with the vision. It, so- it just sounds right in, t- in today's world. John, I'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot more in the f- in the future. This is no more than an absolute introduction. Um, uh, but time is short. Is there anything else you, you you'd, you'd like to say before we uh, wind up this first
4: episode? <laughs> no, it's been it's been a pleasure um, to have a great conversation and look forward to continuing it
1: and that was Bjorn Stormberg the uh, researcher from the battery integration um, unit at ANU. Look fascinating stuff David. Um grid forming inverters is interesting. Um now the Tesla big battery will be expanded into um to having sort of um well, what's called inertial or grid forming abilities um and that's going to be a the next big step I think in the management of the grid and it's fascinating to think if, if I've got this right judging from what bjorn and other people have said you know we can actually have um these grids without these massive synchronous machines the actual challenge is actually just sort of moving from one to the other we the current grid relies so much on synchronous machines we kind of want to move to the inverter based technology but how do you manage that transition and there's um there's a lot of debate about how we are actually managing that transition
2: so that's exactly right, Charles. and I think we're all going to learn a lot about this, and, and we're not power engineers, and I, I, <laughs> the chances of make, us making a mistake are extremely high. Uh, but uh, uh, let, let's be honest here. But uh, the point is, uh, and I've been reading a lot, uh, as far as you can, be a layperson, about uh, the sort of opportunities uh, and, and how we're going to do this and this idea of hierarchical control, which where all the grids talk to each other, essentially through the exchange medium of voltage, as I understand it. Uh, but but uh, 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 what I think is there are big software and market opportunities. You know, it's an area where the software that runs all this is going to be very important. It's an area where the, all the devices are going to be very important. There's a big device market out there. Uh, so there are, there are actually big market opportunities, I think, uh, for Australian companies, uh, perhaps in this. And as I said, I think it's an area where uh, we can play a bit of a, a, a leading role because we're so set up for it. We, we essentially have all of the bits except the smart inverters.
1: Yeah. I and mean, in fact, it was interesting. I was having a cup of coffee with um, someone this morning who's um, setting up a new fund to invest in exactly those sort of technologies, you know, not just, um, you know, just looking at those enabling technologies, which sort of glues everything together. Um, but just interesting, though, on those main sort of big technologies, which, um, you know, will form the large part of the grid, wind, solar and battery storage. You wrote a very interesting piece about the AEMO ISP, and we've been very complimentary about the AEMO um, integrated system plan, which essentially lays out five different scenarios to manage the transition of the grid, one from very slow, which would be disastrous, to the central, which is business as usual, a consumer um um, a consumer pool, faster rate, a technology-driven faster rate, and then step change, which is the only one that actually conforms to what the scientists say we need to get. And so that gives a couple of different scenarios between 70% renewables and 90% renewables, and that's a really welcome addition to the debate, the fact that we can actually get there, have a cheaper, cleaner, smarter uh, a more reliable grid by you know in twenty years, largely based around renewables. But the point that you made by digging in through some of the submissions, and I also found this with another couple of submissions I happened to be looking at the other day from Energy Australia, they actually all think that AEMO is actually underplaying this and hasn't actually taken. Um, it's a mixture of AEMO and CSIRO modelling, and they really haven't taken into account the amount of rooftop solar that will come into the grid, they haven't taken into account the battery storage costs, you know, there's a big slide and then it just goes flat for two decades, that's not likely to happen. So I guess the upshot of that is that, you know, if they can catch up with the costs and the deployment, then the chances are we can get to those rates of renewables, all other things being equal, a lot quicker than we might even think with that
2: plan. Exactly right, Charles. And I think in you know, um, the ISP's defence, uh, the first thing to say is they've tried to come up with their least regrets options. You know, the, the transmission links, which is primarily what it's about, uh, that will still be required in all the other scenarios. And I want to say up front that I, I'm in favour of having a strong transmission backbone uh, because it, it just does, it is an enabling technology. But for sure, uh, what we're going to see is uh, heaps and heaps more behind the meter solar, that's just blindingly obvious. And the other big thing uh, that I did mention in my note, the submissions point out and, and evidence consists that battery costs have just plummeted. Anyone who looks at the new uh, Tesla uh, uh, mega pack uh, their own advertising says it just takes forty percent of the not very big space of what of the Tesla power pack, so you know they 've halved the space requirement over two years, they 've done so much more integration of the components and, and and I reckon the cost is less than half what it was. Uh, if you look at H- Hornsdale for, uh, you, uh, you know, and that's in two years. So uh, imagine where we're going to be in another 10 years. Now, the, the rate of cost improvement will slow down, but but uh, people really uh, need to pay a lot of attention to that. And yeah, by the way, even absolutely. though the cost has come down, if you left the frequency control revenues and other bits out, it still wouldn't be that economic, frankly, uh, I don't think. it's you, you do need all these other services that batteries are so good at.
1: But they are well, good they them. Well, they can do all those things. Absolutely, they are good at them. all we've got to do is actually create the markets and uh, maybe simplify some of the other markets to allow them to do that So, um, but um, yeah, look, and, and this isn't really a criticism of the ISB, I think it's a pretty good document and they've actually been quite open to having more inputs and submissions um, I, I actually think this is really good news and thinking well, what they've done and drawn up is actually quite a conservative thing, even though it doesn't sound conservative in the politics, political debate in Australia, but um, we could actually go so much quicker and I just think that's really positive. David um, with our interviews and our chat, we've probably gone enough, so um, I think um, we'd better thank our sponsors, Solar Energy and Evergen, and thank you very much for your ongoing support, and um, unless there's something else um, really important to say, we probably should say goodbye to our listeners, and, um, and, um, and probably just point out that we're actually going to be back, we're taking a week off next week, and we'll be back in a fortnight, so hopefully nothing too exciting happens in the next two weeks, apart from more stuff from the, the government, and they're wrestling with fossil fuel subsidies of some sort.
2: I think there is more exciting stuff happening, Giles, but uh, not stuff we're going to talk about on air. So it's uh, goodbye from you and goodbye from me. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.